and welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Today is July 14th, and my name is Erica. I will be your host. Joining me in the virtual studio today is Gabby, Tiffany, (laughs) not Gabby, Elliot, and Doug. So welcome all. Hello. Hi, everyone. Hello. Oh, hello. Today our topic is hazed and confused, the psychology of hazing. So for our listeners who may not have been hazed or experienced (laughs) hazing, it is the... uh, defined as an activity required implicitly or explicitly as a condition of initiation or continued membership in an organization, whether it be a college fraternity, sorority, sports team, military unit, or social club. Hazing negatively impacts the physical and psychological well-being of initiates and is said to create bonds between members. But is that really the case? Does shared PTSD make people closer? Is hazing really effective in making people want to join a group and even like the group that they are joining? Some researchers believe that hazing produces cognitive dissonance and wears down an individual's sense of identity. Undergraduates prone to hazing are reported to have lower self-esteem, relying too much on peers and suffering from a dislike of solitude. So today on the Health and Wellness Show, we will discuss the psychology of hazing. At least one hazing death a year has occurred on college campuses every year since 1969, and many years multiple deaths have transpired. Is hazing part of an evolutionary psychology, as some suggest, or is it just bullies out of control? So join us today, folks, as we discuss hazing stories that have captured the headlines and what is being done to address the issue. So we also encourage anyone of our chatters or listeners to call in and share stories or experiences with hazing. I know speaking for myself, I was in college. I was never in a sorority, so I never experienced hazing. What about co-hosts? Anyone ever experienced hazing? I didn't even know they existed. I'd I'd seen it on um like when I was a teenager watching films like American Pie and those trashy kind of teenage comedy type films, and the way that it's painted in those films is that it's kind of like a cool thing, and um it's just has a you know, like like a comedic value to it. Uh, it's kind of just funny things. You don't really I I never really knew that it was like a proper thing until I started actually sort of keeping up to date with SART and seeing a few things here and there and then reading all the articles for this show, it seems like it's actually deeply a deeply sort of entrenched sort of practice among all of these different fraternities and sororities and stuff. Mm. And, and it's it, I just find it like a really strange thing. But I've never come across it in my day to day life. I haven't come across it much either. And I think um <clears throat> frat and sorority culture is kind of a big thing in the US. But um, me being from Canada, it, I don't know, at least at the, the, the schools I had kind of experience with, there wasn't, there wasn't a big frat or sorority culture. It was just kind of like, I mean, it was a thing. You could do it if you wanted to, but it didn't seem like very many people were actually interested. So, yeah, it wasn't. And I never had a job where there was any kind of hazing involved or anything like that. I think I'd probably steer clear of those kinds of jobs. But, um, 
yeah, so I don't I don't really have any experience with it in my kind of day to day reality. No, I haven't either. When I was in college, I just wanted to go to my classes and get the heck out of there. Same with high school. I was just counting down the time where I graduated and didn't have to go back to school. Um, I I don't think I've ever been hazed. Uh, I think it's important to differentiate. I mean, because a lot of hazing involves bullying. It's kind of like organized bullying. But I guess with hazing, there's the consent of the other person even though they may not know how severe it might be or exactly what it entails. Mm. But, um, yeah, I don't think I, I've, ex- I've experienced what I've felt like was hazing, like through going <laughs> through certain, uh, like certain college degrees that I've had. Like, psychological hazing. Yeah, it felt like psychological <laughs> hazing, like you were being tested or run <clears throat> through the ringer on purpose. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, but. I don't think I've had any. I never wanted to join a group. I didn't even want to join the basketball team. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's kind of the same with me. Maybe I can, uh, you know, attribute, like, that's one thing that was positive about my complete lack of interest in any kind of extracurricular activity is that I didn't have to go through any kind of hazing. Well, it seemed like just look being in college and seeing sororities and fraternities, they all just seemed like such superficial people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like they mm-hmm. com- claim the, oh, our organization does this, that, and the other thing for the community. But it just seems like they're just people who like to party and look a certain way and try to act cool. And I never wanted to be a part of that. Of course, yeah. I it's heard about kind of stuff, like, like watched in movies, but. Like Animal House. Yeah. Or yeah. Dazed and Confused. <laughs> yeah. Or Old School. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it seems like a lot of the idea of hazing is associated with colleges, mm-hmm. even though it does happen in, you know, military units and in mm-hmm. camps mm-hmm. and even in certain clubs. But it seems like a lot of the news that we read about, especially on SOT, is um, corresponding with what they call Greek letter organizations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And... uh it's pretty harmful, and it seems that um, it's gotten frater- fraternities and sororities a lot of negative publicity. And so, like you were saying, Tiffany, a lot of times when people think about fraternities or sororities, they think about these aspects of hazing and not the fact that they volunteer mm-hmm. and help people in the community or do things like that. Um, when doing research for this show... We were looking into kind of like the disciplinary procedures or if colleges are really doing anything to deal with the issue. And there's this fraternal information and programming group, and they define hazing activities, which I think is important for people who maybe aren't familiar with even what the word is. So basically, they say it's any action taken or situation created intentionally whether on or off fraternity premises to produce mental or physical discomfort, embarrassment, harassment, or ridicule. Such activities may include, but are not limited to, the first one, use of alcohol, mm-hmm. paddling in any form, creation of excessive fatigue, physical and psychological shocks, quests, treasure hunts, scavenger hunts, road trips, or any other such activities carried on outside or inside the confines of the chapter house. 
wearing of public apparel, which is conspicuous and not normally in good taste, engaging in public stunts and buffoonery, moral degrading or humiliating games and activities, and other activities which are not consistent with academic achievement, <laughs> fraternal <laughs> law, ritual or policy, or the regulations and policies of the educational institution or applicable state law. <laughs> wow. That almost seems too loose a definition, you know? Yeah. It's kind of like, no scavenger hunts? Scavenger hunts are fun. Well, if scavenger hunts count, then I've been hazed. You yeah. always hated scavenger hunts. <laughs> really? Like, I, I can like find that. my way around campus just by going around campus. Don't send me on some inane quest. <laughs> I love inane quests. Well, what's interesting is that in the U.S., hazing is considered a crime in 44 states. That's mm. almost all the states in the United States. Yeah. But they, uh, there was Arizona revised statutes provides the following definition. It means any intentional knowing or reckless act committed by a student, whether individually or in concert with others against another student. And in which both of the following apply. A, the act was committed in connection with an initiation into or an affiliation with or the maintenance of membership in any organization that is affiliated with an educational institution. And the act contributes to a substantial risk of potential physical injury, mental harm or degradation, mm. mental harm or personal degradation and causing physical injury. Scary. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That that one sounds like a little bit more well defined to me. That yeah. first one I thought it sounded really loose. Like it kinda like could be, you know, it's kind of thing where you could suddenly put anything under the umbrella of hazing. Whereas mm -hmm. this one's a little bit more more specific. So I like I think more about um the second definition when I would, would be thinking about what hazing is. Mm -hmm. but, uh, and the yeah. fact that they have to define it so just shows how widespread it is. And actually, it's yeah. been going on for a very long time. Like in the 1600s, there was hazing in Europe, North Africa, and Greece, but they didn't call it hazing back then. They called it penalism or <laughs> penalism. But they, uh, they ended up banning it back in the 1700s because people were getting injured and they were dying even back then. Uh, and even in the 6th century BC, the emperor Justinian outlawed hazing. Hmm. And then in 1933, a bunch of colleges in the U.S. signed a pledge to ban hazing. But of course, it still happens. Yeah, I think uh, in a lot of the cases we were reading about where, you know, some kind of incident happened. Like there's the number of incidents of hazing where somebody actually dies is, is truly shocking mm -hmm. um, or ends up in the hospital or any other number number of other things that could go wrong but um a lot of the times you would hear a statement from the university where they said we you know we don't condone hazing blah 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 blah, blah. and yet it's still happening mm -hmm. so i think uh in a lot of these situations i think that what's happening is that the, the the colleges and universities are just kind of turning a blind eye to it they know it's going on but they also know that it's illegal in some cases or that it could be looked upon kind of poorly but there was the one incident um where there was one uh, frat at, um, sorry, I'm just looking for the article right now, but um, there was one frat where they um, 
what was it? Yeah, there was some kind of uh, incident. Oh, yeah. Okay, so here's the article. It was a frat called Sigma Alpha Epsilon. Mm-hmm. Um, and they have they have chapters in all like uh, 200 different uh, schools across the U.S. And apparently it's a pretty posh one where a lot of the, the um, frat members actually go on to be in like the financial industry and all these other kinds of er- like high paying areas. And uh, there was an incident at one of the frats where somebody died. And the university um, basically banned the frat and said, you're not, you know, you guys aren't allowed here anymore. And as a result, one of their alumni withdrew a $2 million um, pledge, I guess, or uh, donation, essentially. So you can see how it's kind of backed up, right? Like the alumni who were once members of these frats, like still support them. So as soon as the the university tries to have any kind of um, consequence for, uh, you know, uh, something that goes wrong with these the, these hazing rituals, suddenly they're having their alumni starting to withdraw money. So I can see why there's kind of like, you know, uh, an incentive for the university to kind of turn a blind eye to what's what's going on here. Yeah, I think money plays a big part in it. Mm-hmm. Like some yeah. of these alumni do donate large sums of money. They also sometimes go back to the college campus and participate in some of these hazing rituals. Jesus. But uh, a lot of sororities and fraternities, you know, colleges get a lot of students based on how they rank and the party Mm. atmosphere. So if certain students go to a college just to join certain fraternities or sororities, you can see why universities want to keep that kind of hushed hush. But they know that students are going there just to party and join certain Greek organizations. But there was... uh, One student uh, who went away to college, I think he was somewhere from the East Coast, and he went out to the West Coast, some university in California, and he decided to pledge a fraternity, and they were making him go through all kinds of things, and uh, they had him drink a large amount of alcohol, and he ended up dying of alcohol poisoning. But before he actually joined the fraternity, his mother actually went onto the college's website, and the fraternity's a little portion of the website and tried to look up like what kind of organization is this? And she couldn't find anything about any kind of hazing statistics or anything. So after their son died, they filed a lawsuit, but they are also trying to at least get universities to put up hazing statistics on their website. So people will know what they're getting in for before they pledge a fraternity or a sorority. Well, what's so, so crazy about it is what happens in, in the process. Like, so for pledges for sororities and fraternities, they have what's called Hell Week. And it's a week, I don't know if it's like in September or something, but it basically, they spend a week being tormented, humiliated, driven to the brink of sanity. And some of the things that happens is they get, hit in the mouth with a chair while eating pie off the floor, blindfolding students, um, being forced to eat worms, slathered with molasses, honey, and Mm -hmm. peanut butter, raw eggs. Some pledges have to spend an entire week with rotten fish dangling from their necks. And there's even rumors of bestiality and branding. Mm -hmm. And, And so this is this hell week. And then apparently if you survive, you get to join the club. I I don't know. 
my cousin has a brand on his arm in the shape of whatever fraternity he was in. But branding, uh-huh. yeah, that happens quite a bit when people join fraternities. I don't know if it's such a big thing with sororities, though. Yeah, but it's a lot of humiliating behavior. Some of it is more extreme than others. Like mm-hmm. uh, there's some uh, sororities, fraternities where you have to volunteer to be like uh, a senior member's servant for a while and then you get to join or you have to do somebody's laundry or uh, walk around in women's clothing if you're a man or just do like certain humiliating acts and then it just ramps up from there. Yeah. There's certain researchers who said that hazing has always been around, but it seems like recently it's gotten even more violent and more sexually oriented. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the, the, the question is, is, is do these experience, why would these experiences make people want to join an organization that does that? Yeah. Why do people want to join organizations anyway? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, a big okay. thing that yeah. sororities and fraternities claim is that they do certain things for the community. They're like social service organizations. And then other people say that joining one of these organizations, you get to network or you get certain advantages in whatever field you're pursuing that you wouldn't get otherwise. Or maybe there's some famous members that was in your fraternity fraternity (laughs) or sorority and you want to be a part of that. But I, I don't see really what the attraction is. Yeah. I mean, I kind of feel the same way, but just like, say, uh, you know, you are the kind of person who would want to do that, mm-hmm. you know, join some kind of club, like maybe, you know, you're going to school, you don't have any friends there, so you're kind of nervous about it, joining a club, you know, so you've got some friends around, you know, it's your, you automatically have access to all these parties and things like that. Like, it, there does seem to be an incentive as far as social environment goes, at least in the U.S., from what I understand. Mm-hmm. Um or, you know, I know there's a lot of things like uh, about, um, you know, kids joining the same uh, frats or sororities that their parents belong to. So there might mm-hmm. be pressure in that kind of way as well. Um, but I think a lot of the times, like, you know, I, I don't think in a lot of cases people necessarily know what they're getting into as far as the whole hazing thing goes. And a lot of, you know, I'm inferring this, so I don't necessarily know it. But it seems like in a lot of these cases, it's kind of things just start going too far. Like, it's not like anybody's you know, setting out to do severe physical damage to one of the pledges or something like that. But it just it's just things tend to escalate and there's alcohol involved and things kind of go completely overboard. I mean, you know, in some cases, I think there are certainly sadistic people out there who kind of take this as an, oppor- an opportunity to kind of act out their deep, dark fantasies mm-hmm. by having, uh, you know, semi-willing people um, available. But um, I think in, in a lot of cases, it just it, it reads like things just escalate um, beyond what they nece- necessarily intended to have happen in the first place. Well, I think that's the case in a lot of ways. Like maybe it didn't start off that way, but it seems like over time, as what happens in loads of other organizations or institutions, that the... I guess you could say psychopaths or 
people with deviant personalities or sadists or narcissists or Machiavellians mm. join organizations and corrupt them. Yeah. I think that accounts for a lot of reasons why a lot of these hazing rituals are so brutal and sexually mm. oriented. Because I cannot believe that a normal person would sodomize somebody with a broomstick just to have them yeah. on the football team. Yeah. That yeah. is just a beyond the pale. Yeah. And that well, happened in several different schools, not just colleges, but high schools. Yeah. It's it's kind of insane when you read about that because one of the things I was thinking while reading some of these things is like, you know, never mind like, you know, being put through that, which would be absolutely horrible, but who would want to do that to another person? Mm-hmm. Like that, I mean, the idea that it's a, that a serious, like, you know, somehow, somehow psychologically deviant person, I think is very valid um, because, yeah, I can't, I can't imagine wanting to inflict that on somebody. Mm-hmm. Like it just sounds disgusting. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like um, like a, a group or, or the crowd mindset kind of takes takes over these these otherwise mm. normal individuals. You know, say you've got possibly some kind of sort of authoritarian um, follower type personality who who merely just kind of wants to feel like they belong in a specific group or something. They join an organization like this, and then you've got the few or perhaps the many sort of deviant personalities within that organization and mm. um it's like lobachowski talks about in a uh, political panorology about how uh, gradually with with uh, increased exposure to these types of deviant personalities the the otherwise normal sort of um individuals gradually begin to um to 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 uh, to develop or to sort of um acquire certain characteristics and tendencies that, mm-hmm. that have been almost thrust upon them by these sort of pathological individuals and it's it, i guess i guess that that's the only way that i can sort of make sense of something like that uh as in as in a group say a, a scenario which uh one of the articles spoke about like a group of say 14 young teenagers sodomizing someone with a, a say a broomstick i mean i can't imagine that all of them are psychopaths mm-hmm. it, 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 the likelihood is fairly low but there's got to be some sort of mechanism by which the the average individual can somehow see that as acceptable and i guess it's probably mm-hmm. a process and this maybe this is what the you know that that the the it's it's got to be a sort of process you know and it's like mm-hmm. gradually they 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 begin to to, to do these crazier and sort of darker um, more depraved um tasks throughout throughout mm-hmm. the time that they're being tested and uh, i guess gra- gradually this this starts to wear away at their sort of moral compass you know and they start mm-hmm. to see this stuff as acceptable and i guess maybe they they also they also look upon these individuals who are higher up in the organization with some respect and stuff and so there's probably so many factors involved but there's got to be some kind of polarization involved there you know i think that's mm-hmm. the only way that i can i can i can personally come to terms with with some of this stuff because it is mm-hmm. it's really it's hard to get your head around otherwise yeah yeah, it's really dark. And I think protecting the group plays a lot into it as well. Like um, there's all these stories about people, even if they didn't die, they might end up with alcohol poisoning. There's one uh, pledge who actually did die because they, I think, 
I mean, there's so many of them. It's hard to keep it straight, but this might have been one of the guys. They were locked in a garage and they had an hour and a half to drink a huge amount of alcohol. And the guy passed out and all of his frat brothers, none of them would call for help. They let him sit there for like 12 hours and he ended up dying. But a lot of these organizations, like if they can tell that somebody's in distress, they're not going to call 911 because everybody's going to get in trouble. They're going to get charged with assault or murder or something. Yeah. And that whole and I, concept of ratting out, like because it's a secret, it's like this secret, it's not supposed to be happening. Universities don't acknowledge it. There's all these anti-hazing laws that are really just on paper but not enforced. But, you know, even one concerned person in that group, if they were to do the right thing and go against the group, you know, they're a rat and they could be hazed even worse. I mean, they could essentially be tortured. Or, God forbid, mm -hmm. not be allowed to stay in the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think I, I think with that, um, that example you just gave, Tiff, about the, the guy who like passed out i think if it's the same one um about the guy who who basically fell down the basement stairs and knocked his head and then he tried mm -hmm. to get up several times throughout the night and he kept he banging kept his head on like the, yeah he kept falling when i read that you know it was <sighs> treacherous like you know it doesn't even bear thinking about but this guy he clearly got up a couple of times tried to tried to move towards the door um, possibly to get help who knows um, but he kept hitting his head. And then when they found him in the morning that he was cold, um, they, it, it, the article said that they, um, that they didn't contact the, the emergency services until like an hour later after they found that he was dead. So, I mean, you can, you can imagine this sort of thing that, that, that they were or that might have stopped them from doing that. You know, they have to sort of network and decide what happened and, you know, come up with a, a sort of believe, yeah, believable narrative that they can essentially cover their own backs with. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, it's really sad that a lot of these sort of naive young teenagers who go off to college and, you know, have a, a future ahead of them, uh, you know, they, they probably think that this stuff is all fun and games. But uh, when you take into consideration the types of sort of personalities that may sort of be attracted by these kind of organizations you see that well it's it's a bit of a dangerous game and a lot of times like uh with certain high school groups football teams and whatnot uh it comes out that the administrators in the school were kind of aware that there was a certain hazing culture going on but they don't do anything about it there's this really sad story about this 13 year old boy I don't know if this counts as hazing or not, but it's definitely bullying. But mm. just as an example of how people do not recognize pathology when they see it and they'll try to do whatever they can to kind of sweep it under the rug. This 13 year old boy was sodomized by two other students at his school. The, the victim, his dad was a school principal and the two of the perpetrators, their dad was the wrestling coach and the dad of the kid who got abused reported the incident and the townspeople all banded together and forced him to resign and they ended up mocking the son he had to pull his son out of school yeah and it's just so weird to me how people 
just cannot face reality. I mean, this was a brutal act. This boy was basically raped by two other boys and they're going to try and cover it up and try to defend what happened as, you know, just horseplay. Yeah. Yeah. They were even saying that, oh, you know, it's just normal. And this is how kids, you know, they need to toughen up. And, you know, we live in a culture now where people just sue everybody over every little thing and stuff. And it's like, you're just reading this and you're like, are are these people insane? Mm -hmm. Like, how can, how can anybody think that this is any kind of acceptable behavior at all? Like, I would think that those, the two boys who perpetrated it would be embarrassed, you know, Mm -hmm. would be like humiliated that they had actually done something like that, you know, especially given the, like the, the homophobic nature of a lot of um, the culture out there for them to do something that is basically, you know, uh, associated at least with a homosexual act, I would think that they would be very embarrassed about that. But it sounds like they were almost like proud of it. Yeah. And it's just so disturbing how much sodomy comes up in a lot of these cases, like with uh, broomsticks and pool cues and Sharpie pins and, you know, forcing each other to rape each other or perform sexually oriented acts. Like even in the TSA, they kind of initiate their new recruits with something called a rape table and they grind up against them and do sexually oriented things. I mean, it's just sick. I mean, these people are sick. Yeah. When it goes that it, it shows that it continues after college. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like the initiation happens in college and you're indoctrinated into that mindset Mm -hmm. and then it carries on. Yeah. Into other aspects of life. Yeah. Well, there's this other case where I think it's Sigma Phi Epsilon. This happened at Clemson University. You know, um, they make the pledges, you know, perform menial tasks and clean up and do laundry and that. And the frat brothers demanded that this new pledge bring them breakfast. And he said he didn't have the money to go out to McDonald's and get 30 sausage McMuffins or whatever it is that they asked for. So they all went on a morning run. And then somehow this guy took a dive off of a bridge and actually got killed jumping off this bridge. Or so they said he jumped or dove or something, but maybe he was thrown. Yeah. Well, especially apparently there was a history of them, you know, throwing pledges over that same bridge in the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they probably thought, okay, well, this is his consequence. He's going over the bridge. And then, you know, it's something completely dangerous and it only takes once for something to go wrong. Yeah. And there was one other case where there was a, a pledge that was extremely allergic to peanuts and people knew that uh, and they smeared his face with peanut butter and he almost died. And that was in Michigan. Yeah. Yeah. That one's really disturbing. I think he actually had to move school as well. He actually, he, he left the college and, and moved to a different one. Um, there's, there's, another, there's another one that I can think of that's in my mind. Um, it wasn't on any of the, the articles, but it was uh, something that came up in the UK maybe last year or two years ago it was about um the at that time it was the current prime minister so david cameron 
Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we don't know if he was willing to do it or not. I wouldn't be surprised. But, <laughs> but yeah, so, so there was, there was the case. Um, someone wrote a book about this person claimed to, um, to have been part of a, a similar kind of fraternity group at, um, I think it was Cambridge or Oxford University at a similar time as David Cameron. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and he made the claim that David Cameron himself had uh, had actually had sexual intercourse with a with a pig, and that was one of that was one you know the bestiality aspect of it. That that was one of the the so called sort of a ritual type tasks that that these guys had to do to mm-hmm. sort of prove themselves. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't even bear thinking about. But you hear stories and you read things, um, and. I get if if it's anything like that. I mean, that's just utterly demoralizing. Mm-hmm. And how much must someone feel like they they want to be? There must be such a an intense drive to be part of this particular culture or whatever to be able to do something like that, unless it is your, unless it's something that you may be inclined to do otherwise. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of people don't, but I, you know, it'd be interesting to know how many people wouldn't really want to have sex with a pig, but force themselves to do it anyway and then end up bloody traumatized by it (laughs) um you know what i mean it's just but then it it brings back it just brings it back to me is that you know what kind of personality you know like doug you said about you know these these dark fantasies that these sort of deviant individuals have you know what kind of person must be there to make the rules (laughs) you know to to come Mm. up with these ideas these are not normal people the average no, person, because the average person cannot even conceptualize something as, as deprived as that. It, it, these, it shows that there, there must be such, it's, it's almost like this, this, this psychopathology, whether it's, you know, psychopaths or, you know, as you said, like Machiavellans or, or whatever. But these people are not normal people, but it seems that they've infiltrated and, and, and really sort of become entrenched within these kind of, you know, not secret societies, but these sort of elite groups and cultures and they they sort of they span all across so many different areas i i mean they're in the uk they're in the us they're probably in other countries as well um Mm. and it's just i don't know i guess it's just a symptom of 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 the whole i don't don't really know what i can say about it it's it's kind of just not very good (laughs) (laughs) one thing that brings kind of a, a different angle to this. And, you know, you can't have the, the this excuse for um, students and things acting in this way. But um, in, like, the Army and the Marines and those sorts of things, even police forces in some cases, um, where they have, uh, you know, these kind of hazing things that go on when, you know, a new person joins the unit or something or just joins the Army and they, they're put the, through these, like, horrific kind of hazing rituals, I wonder if actually it's kind of a byproduct of the reprogramming that they kind of have to go through. Mm-hmm. How the whole idea for a soldier is to completely break them down so that they're all they are is like orders following machines that don't mm-hmm. actually, you know, check in with their conscience before any kind of um, action is taken. So I wonder in, in a lot of cases um, if, if when people have been put through that and basically completely broken down, um, if it's just a symptom of kind of the damage that's been done. Or maybe that's the whole purpose is to break them down so you can build them into whatever it is you want them to be. 
Yeah, that's possible. And and also, like like you said before, um, you know, some of these sort of uh, fraternities and stuff. And at Oxford, you have other types of societies and stuff um, in the UK. But you say that there's there's a lot of these sort of elite children or they're kind of posh groups who then go on to be, you know, multimillionaires or whatever. Um, it makes you wonder whether some of it is to get dirt on these people. Mm-hmm. You know, whether, you know, you can essentially... You can essentially say, well, you know, you've got to put this policy in place or you've got to make this deal or you've got to do something or else, you know, we're going to hang you loose to the media. Something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. It wouldn't surprise me. Yeah, Yeah. it wouldn't surprise me either. We do have a a short clip on hazing. It's called Why We Let Hazing Happen. We can play that and then come back and comment. Okay. Hey guys, Julia here for DNews. Initiation rights seem as old as time. Thousands of cultures participate in some variation of them. Here in America, we often associate them with sports teams, social groups, Greek organizations on college campuses, or even the military. Bullying is as old as we are too. It's when someone who is in a position of power abuses someone beneath them. But put those two together and you get hazing. Hazing is defined by the Ramapo Journal of Law and Society as any activity required implicitly or explicitly as a condition of initiation or continued membership in an organization that may negatively impact the physical or psychological well-being. Hazing is like bullying, but it's a little weird. Here's a direct quote from a researcher. It's very rare for bullies to say, I'm going to bully you for three months, but after that, we're going to be bros. But that's the sort of thing that happens with hazing. Hazing isn't fun. It's not. But that's not what you might hear coming out of the mouths of recent pledges. And that's because they've convinced themselves they've enjoyed it. I once had a friend in a frat, sorry, he would be mad if I said that, I should call it a fraternity, who said he participated in hazing because, quote, shared PTSD makes you closer. What? Well, he's not entirely wrong. Sharing something brings people together, whether it's a meal, a victory, and yes, even being hazed. When you think of hazing, you think of a few things. Drinking games and embarrassing dares, like having intimate relations with a pig, for example. And it turns out it's really effective in making people want to join a group and in making people really like the group they're joining. Social psychology explains that hazing produces cognitive dissonance, which is the mental stress you feel when dealing with two contradictory beliefs. Early social psychology says that pledges try to dispel that dissonance from hazing in two ways. He can convince himself that the initiation was not very unpleasant, or he can exaggerate the positive characteristics of the group and minimize its negative aspects. And the more unpleasant the initiation is, the less they can convince themselves of the former, so they have to exaggerate the latter. One famous 1959 psychology study found that people liked the group they joined more if they did something embarrassing to get in. In this study, researchers had college women try to get into a book club. Some women went through severe initiation, some went through a mild initiation, and some went through none at all. But severe in this case was to read obscene words out loud and also read aloud two vivid descriptions of sexual activity from contemporary novels. But hey, it was the 50s, so that was downright scandalous at the time. Anyway, the researchers found that those who went through the severe initiation rated the group as significantly more attractive than those women who went through other initiations. Basically, the harder and more uncomfortable it was to get into the group, the more they claimed they liked it. And the harder the initiation, the greater the dissonance, and the more they fight it by liking it. So basically, your brain is like, wow, this sucks. Why did I do this? But you know what? This club must be really cool to get into. Hazing also forges these strong bonds between pledges by wearing down their sense of individual identity. It can be 
physical or psychological. Because when people in a group are faced with a threat, they rely more on the group and look for group promoting behavior. So basically you look around during something kind of traumatic and make sure everyone is in it together. This kind of shared trauma creates an intense bond with other pledges and creates a distance between themselves and non-group members. Basically it creates a kind of us versus them mentality among pledges. And the experience of hazing itself or maltreatment as some researchers call it makes pledges feel dependent on the group cognitively, socially, and emotionally. Because of what they went through together, they now depend on the group for opinions and even validation. You probably won't be surprised to learn that there are some downsides to hazing. One study published in the journal Group Dynamics Theory, Research, and Practice found that undergrads who went through hazing had low self-esteem, they rely more on their peers, and don't like to be left alone. So while hazing and severe initiation might be unpleasant and potentially dangerous, it does exactly what it's designed to do. It wears individual identity down, strengthens bonds with group members, and convinces you that getting kind of abused is fun. And it increases the prestige of the team or group. Gotta stop prematurely there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, does shared trauma actually bond people together? Mm. I wouldn't say in a healthy way. <laughs> <laughs> I think it does, but maybe shared trauma that occurs naturally or because of some natural event or disaster might bond people together. But this is enforced trauma on people. Mm -hmm. Like people have been through wars together or that's kind of enforced too, but like some kind of natural disaster, like Mm. victims of hurricanes or something like that may have a shared bond with other people who've been through the same things or Mm. like uh, certain rape victims or abuse victims or something like that might bond together over their shared trauma. But Mm. something about hazing just kind of doesn't quite fit with that. Mm. Maybe. Well, it's, it's inflicted intentionally. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Produce that to break an individual down and to, have them rely on the group for acceptance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if there's a difference between, you know, the, the bonding that goes on between your co-sufferers. So like among pledges versus the people who are actually doing it to them. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, I can't imagine unless it is some form of Stockholm syndrome, which is something that's been kind of uh, put forward by certain psychologists. But, um, you know, if I, I can't see if there's some guy who is essentially torturing me for a couple of months um, that by the end of it, I'm going to be closer to that guy. I mean, maybe it is Stockholm syndrome. I don't know, but it, it just seems very counterintuitive that, uh, you know, it would promote bonding with the person who's actually inflicting the the pain. You know, I can see, yeah, oh, my fellow sufferers, I feel closer to them because we all went mm-hmm. through the same thing. But, uh, but yeah, I don't know if it would work in a hierarchical manner at all. Maybe there are some people who look forward to the time where they'll be able to inflict the suffering, too. I mean, that might be some aspect to it. Which is also kind of sick. Yes. I'd like to think that if someone was inflicting pain on me, I think this guy is such a knob. (laughs) You know, (laughs) get me away from this guy. I don't ever want to spend time with him again. You know, in fact, I might even hit him. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, you think that was a natural natural reaction but i maybe i mean i guess it kind of makes sense that there's an element of sort of stockholm syndrome involved and 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 even i guess you know like what you said tiff about you know eventually seeing yourself in a position where you can inflict pain on others and sort of admiring that or liking that or something but that's still a very uh difficult thing to kind of get your head around isn't it 
Yeah. yeah, and an, another weird thing that she brought up in the clip is that the more severe the hazing ritual, the more positive the person feels about the group that they're they're joining. Mm. I can kind of see how you know the explanation for it being like cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. I mean, it kind of makes sense. It's like you know your brain has these two kind of contradictory ideas, like why am I going through this or why did I go through this. And it's like it needs to come up with a reason, and it's like, oh, because I really wanted to get in because this is a really good group. And you'll find all kinds of reasons to kind of justify that, to kind of get rid of that cognitive dissonance. Because I've actually, yeah. like in studies, shown that cognitive dissonance, you know, shows up in the brain almost the same way as physical pain does. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of cases, people are so desperate to kind of get rid of that dissonant feeling that they'll just latch onto something like, oh, yeah, well, this, I, I did it because this is a great, a great group to belong to. I think the whole the whole sort of um, hazing thing has kind of been probably somewhere down the line sort of co-opted because I think I think the kind of concept behind it, the fundamental idea behind something like that, almost like an initiation ritual, I you know it can go one of either two ways. In that I I I agree with the idea, or I can understand the idea. Um, that that someone to be able to sort of integrate themselves into a group has to almost um, prove that they are trustworthy, prove that they are that they can essentially function and belong within that group. And I think maybe that's that's um, you know that's where this kind of stems from. But that that it's almost been co-opted, and rather than sort of taking someone's natural sort of um, how can I say this? Basically, that if someone was out in the wild and they came across a tribe of a tribe of people, I would imagine that it, the way that the tribe would uh, almost protect themselves, keep keep themselves safe, is by sort of monitoring the this new newfound individual mm-hmm. to see whether they were sort of worthy and and trustworthy and safe within their group. And that is like a almost like a survival thing, you know. That's 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 like mm-hmm. a fundamental human trait, you know. You would have to do that in order to be able to keep your family safe and your tribe safe. And so mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. almost like somewhere down the line this took that almost fundamental human or aspect of human nature but co-opted it in a way that you could you could get them to do what you want them to do with no sort of purpose other than to sort of sat- satisfy your own urges you know that all the all the individuals urges to to control someone or if that makes any sense am i explaining that right <laughs> yeah i yeah. think so yeah i think yeah. so for sure and i think it's i think it's a good point i think that yeah it wouldn't surprise me if there was some sort of like you know ancient evolutionary kind of root to all this because it is weird that it just pops up in cultures all over the place this kind of hazing thing and then Um, it's still going on yeah yeah all cultures have some kind of initiation rituals i mean it doesn't necessarily have to involve pain but a lot of times it does like for certain age groups like boys who enter into manhood or girls or enter into womanhood there's certain things that they have to do in order to become a man or to become a woman, I think that that kind of leaving behind one, you know, childlike state and moving toward towards adulthood, that's probably something that's evolutionary as a part of our evolutionary psychology. 
But yeah, like Elliot said, I think it has been co-opted. I think it does kind of serve a purpose, like it bonds people together as one distinct group. I mean, even like in disparate cultures around the world or even in a sports team, it does kind of foster this us versus them mentality, which is actually Mm. important to keep a group cohesive. But I think in the cases of hazing, it's just completely out of control and it's not to it doesn't serve any purpose Mm -hmm. like any benefit to anybody outside of i don't know outside of the immediate group members because they don't really do anything for anybody else as far as i know maybe they do well it seems interesting too that it happens so much in america because there is this lack of rite of passage in American culture. And we've talked to previous shows, you know, about teens and young adults. And what I found interesting about these hazing incidences is the copious amount of alcohol that's Mm -hmm. consumed. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this losing control and how far can you take it? And if you survive, then maybe you're a man or a woman. It just really has been downgraded to the point where it's frightening it really is yeah well it's it's interesting because i think there's the you know i I can see how maybe something like those um team building exercises and things like that that they tend to put uh you know corporation employees through and stuff like that like how that could actually be you know something that uh is is kind of akin to hazing but it isn't it doesn't involve humiliation and any of those other kinds of things it's more about like just working together, cooperating, like, you know, surmounting a challenge in some way, how that could be like kind of a more positive bonding experience. But it's, I think there is, I think, I think that what you guys have been saying is right, that there is some kind of pathological element to hazing that's kind of taken over kind of maybe that more natural um, tradition. And I think uh, I read one uh, article where they were talking about how um, it's kind of a way for established members of the group to kind of put the new person in their place and kind of establish that they are sort of have power over them without having to kind of um, work out any kind of power dynamic or anything like that. So anybody who potentially comes in could, you know, be a challenge to their position. So this is a way to kind of like force them into a position of subservience to kind of try to abolish any of that kind of drive out of them. So, yeah, I, I can see how that kind of maybe pathological urge might be what's kind of taking over there. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, But there's also been other studies where, like, uh, the researchers studied religious groups, and they found that the more severe the hazing or whatever you want to call it in these religious groups, the more severe the requirements for the certain ritual to get into the group the longer the group lasted and the more cohesive the group was. And it's, yeah, it seems like, like uh, Elliot said, like if somebody abuses me for a certain amount of time, I'm not really going to bond with that person. But I guess in some instances, I don't know Hmm. how true you could call their bonding, but it does keep certain groups together for longer than they would be if their rituals weren't so severe. I don't know quite what to make of that. I think it's 
the, the kind of group, like, you, like you, you just asked the question, you don't know what kind of group it is. Well, what it kind of seems like is that it's like a pyramidal power structure. You know, like, it's, 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 it's a typical sort of hierarchy and and you have to put someone in their place to know where they are and it it just kind of like um how to say it? i guess it's it's kind of, it's i guess it's it's very much uh similar to the way that the world works at the moment you know is that they people don't necessarily within this group perhaps they don't see each other as equal it's perhaps it is like a you know like a corporate structure but not corporate mm. uh i don't i don't really know what i was going to say with that but no, I think that's a good point, actually. I think that, um, you know, maybe the reason that the the group actually works better is because it, it so clearly defines roles. You know, it's like the new person coming in, you are subservient to me. Therefore, what I say has to go. So, you know, it's it's kind of like there isn't maybe any kind of infighting or power grabs or any of that other kind of stuff that might go on where they're not a more like a, a severe kind of initiation ritual. I don't know. I'm just speculating, but uh Well, there are probably more positive uh tests or gauntlets that people can run to get into a group because really mm. if you do join a group, there is an expectation that there will be a period of adjustment, but it doesn't have to be accomplished with beatings and drinking tons and of alcohol and and sexual assaults, I mean, you could bond together over sharing jokes or singing or doing karaoke mm. or dancing and things like that. Yeah. And it would kind of just make sense to look at the aim of the group. So you've got a particular fraternity or, say, a particular group that said that their goal was to achieve a certain thing or work towards achieving something. Say, for instance, you've got a group who thinks that it's really important to go out and have picnics, you know, all the time. I don't know. That's, a, that's not a very good example. But let's just say that was the case. To, to get into the group, you know, it wouldn't make sense to go and show, you know, how good you are at swimming, you know, because the, the, this group doesn't swim. They have picnics. <laughs> so you can just show you, the, the way that you, you prove yourself that you can get into the group is, you know, you, you have lots of picnics and you show that you are good at having picnics and you enjoy it and stuff. And then that is how someone should be accepted. your picnicking skills. <laughs> well, exactly. Yeah. I mean, that should be what is the requirement to get into a specific group. So, you know, all these fraternities and all these groups and stuff, they say they're, they're focused around charitable sort of things you know helping out in society will show that you're good at doing that stuff you know <laughs> fundraising don't see how much you can drink or you know drink a 10 gallons of water because it's got nothing to do with fundraising it just doesn't no. make sense it just shows that there is a clear lack of sort of um you know what they say they want to do is not necessarily got anything to do with the type of people that they're you know, encouraging to join. And I guess it applies to all these different types of group. And it's fairly rational and logical just to think that if someone wants to join a group with a specific game, you just, you know, you just show that you're good at doing that <laughs> in basic terms. <laughs> and every group that's worth its salt as a group should have a way to filter out un uncommitted members, mm. I should say. Like if you have a picnicking group, you don't want the swimmer to join your group. But 
<laughs> you want to make sure that the person is willing to do what it takes to accomplish the aims of the group. And you don't want any slackers mm. in your group. So, yeah. yeah, it does make sense that all groups should have some kind of filtering mechanism. Well, it kind of comes back to our show last week about corporal punishment and, you know, that idea that if you abuse people, maybe they'll respect you. But is that what you want? Is that is that the kind of group that you want, that these people are committed out of fear that they're going to get hazed? or? Yeah. Tiffany, what was that uh, sorority example that you were sharing before the show oh, about? So we've talked a lot about for, for, sororities, <laughs> fraternities, <laughs> but apparently in sororities, there's some pretty disturbing hazing. And again, it goes back to that whole psychological and physical abuse. One of the uh, pictures on the uh, show description is these women that have had their thighs paddled extensively black and blue. Yeah. Yeah. Sororities do not get a easy pass with this because they engage in hazing too. But researchers have pointed out that a lot of the sororities hazing involves like emotional kind of torture. Like they'll make the female pledges walk around naked or in their underwear and they'll like mark their bodies with Sharpies and they'll rate them on parts of their bodies that need work in quotations. And uh, the, the females can be a lot sexually, be, you know, sexually explicit and oriented in their hazing too. There was uh, one sorority. Uh, this was listed on some of the most disgusting hazing stories ever where they said that the pledge had either a choice to snort cocaine or to use a sexual aid in front of the entire group. Like just crazy things like that go on in sororities as well. Yeah. Well, one of the pictures on our, um, on our show is of mugshots of uh, seven uh, girls who were charged after um, what I think, I think somebody died in, in one of their hazing rituals or something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, it is important to note that it's not just the guys who are doing this, like the, the, the ladies seem to do it as well. Yeah. And it's not just colleges. I mean, there's one guy, famous case from some university down south, but he got beat to death as part of his marching band initiation. Yeah. So all groups can be co-opted and polarized. It just depends on who's in the group. But there are several benevolent organizations who do not haze. (laughs) in order to recruit new members. Yeah. Well, one of the interesting things, kind of just tying it all together, is um, anti-hazing laws. So, you know, and if you go on Signs of the Times, you can see all these stories, and maybe it does get a lot of media attention just because it leads to death or just disturbing acts. But only a couple of states have actually had any effect mm-hmm. in 
implementing laws, right? So, you know, at, at the beginning of the show, we talked about how 46 or 48 states, you know, have laws on the books. But if you go through the SOT archive, you'll see in almost every state, somebody has died, something has happened, some, you know, parents are up in arms. But it looks like Florida and Texas have only are the only two states that have actually seen any effects from the hazing laws. And in Florida, um, you know, there was a, some people have gone to jail for up to six years and um, been charged with manslaughter. Uh, but in most states, the laws are just symbolic. Mm-hmm. And so the, the anti-hazing movement basically says that the laws need to be restructured and rewritten. And what was interesting is that a lot of legislators are former members of fraternities and sororities and sports teams, right? Yeah. So they're not really making laws that are going to do anything. Mm-hmm. So at the federal level, there's been a, a about four or five laws that have tried to be passed, and basically they're disastrously written. Mm-hmm. And there's they're not going to get passed, uh, they say, because they violate the Constitution. But... Um, Basically, the the weakness of laws kind of encourages the hazing to continue, and then the whole idea of secrecy. Yeah, I'm sure most of these fraternities and sororities and other organizations that haze are really not thinking about whether it's lawful or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. My question is, can will hazing ever stop? (sighs) Or will it just become, as Elliot said, more deviant? Mm Mm-hmm. It's just like the the de-evolution. Well, I think if you look at society as a whole, not just universities and fraternities and sororities, I mean, things are just becoming more deviant across the board. So I don't know that we're ever going to see a stop to hazing. I think it just comes down to individuals. Like, you have to decide... Is this really something you want to do? Is this a group that you want to belong to, considering mm. what they do to new recruits? Yeah, but then, you know, Elliot brought up earlier about the whole authoritarian personality. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is, like, you know, there are just people out there who will kind of accept this. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I don't know, Tiff. I don't see it changing anytime soon. I can't really see. I mean, all you can really do is get into the whole kind of um, roundabout with like, you know, harsher punishments, stricter reinforcements, that kind of thing. And, you know, maybe that would have some effect, but I don't know, to be honest. I mean, if you've got pathological people out there who are looking to to do this kind of thing, they're probably going to find, you know, willing participants who want to who wanna do it. So I don't know. I, I, I don't really see a way of, of turning it around. Yeah, and considering yeah, I mean, the money aspect of many colleges and universities, I mean, mm-hmm. they might ban an individual fraternity or sorority here and there, but they're not going to outright get rid of the entire Greek system. Mm-hmm. No. Well, I mean, a lot of the even if they... Are... Sorry, go ahead, say, Even if they did, um, then, you know, these the same kinds of people, these deviant personalities who, you know, are attracted by by this kind of thing would form something else, I would imagine, mm-hmm. you know? Or they, they, they would find a way to... <laughs> to do what they do because that is who they are and they will you know if they've got the inclination to do something like that then they will 
you know, create a scenario or whatever, or some sort of system whereby they can perpetrate these, you know, other people in that mm-hmm. sense. And so mm-hmm. I guess that it's just a, a mask, you know, these fraternity things. It's just, it's just like, it's got probably got nothing to do with the, the fraternity. It's just a usable system by these individuals. And I guess like, mm-hmm. if you really want to get kind of like esoteric about it, then I guess the way I kind of see it is, for anything like tiff you asked is this ever going to stop well i guess the only way like theoretically that that would be possible is if uh, the society as a whole sort of developed uh, an adequate level of psychological knowledge to be able Mm. to spot these kind of individuals and to be able to spot these kind of uh types of people who 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 do this kind of thing but that applies to everything doesn't it you know mm-hmm. this this is applies to politics this applies to business this applies to every aspect of life and i mean we all know on here like what are the chances of people developing that, <laughs> that awareness <laughs> you know because yeah. if, if that was the case it wouldn't just be fraternities and sororities that got better it would be reality <laughs> you know yeah, yeah. But the, i hate to say it but i don't see that happening anytime soon so I, hazing is probably, here to stay <laughs> yeah, yeah, basically. <laughs> well, well, have we beaten this topic to death <laughs> yet? <laughs> yeah. Another one to tick off the list. <laughs> <laughs> We've been on a streak lately. Yeah. I know last week we promised that we were going to <laughs> do <laughs> a lighter subject. <laughs> But there's not much likeness to be found. <laughs> to be yeah. <laughs> Sad but true. Yeah. We don't have a pet health segment for today. No, we do not. More sad news. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think animals... Do animals haze each other? Uh, well, there is know, the actually, pecking order. There is the pecking yeah. order. Just watch chickens. <laughs> yeah, I was I was thinking about, like, um, you know, pri- like uh, our primate sort of ancestors you know and, and how kind of dominance is is uh is established through like violence and stuff it's like you know every new up-and-coming like adolescent has to fight the main guy just to like so he gets put into his place i don't know if you can qualify as hazing necessarily but uh bullying or something along those lines so it does happen They don't make monkeys eat a boatload of poison poppies <laughs> in order to be part of the monkey group. <laughs> Not that I know of. Okay. Do we have a recipe? Anybody have uh, a recipe they'd like to share? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got, I got a recipe. I just finished Fine. drinking it. <laughs> do share yeah, um, it's been a while yeah. since we've had a recipe so we thought it would be a good way to bring some yes. light, okay. light to the show Something I, I can do that yeah yeah so it's really good and it's really tasty but it's probably something that a lot of people have kind of have the people who listen to the show anyway they probably do something similar but um yeah so it's similar to a bulletproof coffee um it's basically you just make a really strong coffee however you like it preferably like with some good good quality coffee like i use um one from colombia and it's wet processed 
So mm. th- they say they say that because it's grown at high elevation and it's uh, the, the way that it's processed is called wet processed. It reduces the mycotoxin, apparently the sort of buildup of um, toxins that can grow on the coffee like a fungus. But uh, but anyway, so, yeah, you make a really strong coffee and you can stick it in a saucepan. You need a um, you need a blender like a, just a stick blender. And then you could add a couple tablespoons of maybe some butter unsalted. Or I use coconut oil because I just like the flavor of it. And, uh, and you use about two tablespoons of gelatin, preferably grass-fed gelatin. There's a company called Great Lakes. So I use that mm. one. And I use about a tablespoon or two tablespoons of honey as well. And then you, you basically just stick all that in the pot and then you blend it up. And it it's kind of, I mean, if you don't drink milk, then it kind of turns it into a really milky coffee. Um, and the gelatin kind of helps the coconut oil sort of emulsify with the coffee. So it's it's like drinking like double cream or something in the coffee. But the reason I put honey in it is um, because coffee has an amazing ability to increase the metabolic rate. So it basically it acts like a surrogate for thyroid hormone. It, it increases the oxidation of, of fuel. So you, your mitochondria basically produce more ATP when you drink coffee. Uh, and there's a reason why it causes a stress response in a lot of people. Um, because if you read studies about coffee, it will say that it activates cortisol and adrenaline. Um, and that that is a problem for a lot of people. But I've actually, it used to be a problem for myself as well, but I found that when you take it with sugar um, or honey, preferably, take it with a couple tablespoons of honey, um, what it does is it actually suppresses that 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 stress response. And the reason, or the, the basically the mechanism behind it is because when you drink coffee, it increases the metabolic rate so much that often someone doesn't have enough stored uh, glycogen or sugar in their body to be able to meet that requirement. And so hmm. the reason it activates a stress response is because when you haven't got enough um fuel to meet the energy sort of requirements of the coffee then your body will activate adrenaline and cortisol and that is the cortisol is essentially to break down the muscle tissue in order to increase or to provide fuel for this increased metabolic rate and so if you've had it preferably have it after you've had some carbohydrate or have it with carbohydrate so with honey uh specifically i use that and um, and this actually, I found that I no longer get like a stress response from coffee, or as I used to. And I can I can have it in the evening, and it doesn't keep me awake. Um, hmm. So that's just a little interesting fact right there. So yeah, if you if you make that, I think that you'll probably be quite impressed because it tastes really good. <laughs> Do you have a name for it? Is it hazy coffee? <laughs> Yeah, I, I I call it crazy coffee, but we could change it to hazy coffee. <laughs> so in your picnic club, do you drink those hazy coffees? <laughs> no, we we don't drink hazy coffees. We drink crazy coffees. <laughs> well, thank you, Elliot. That was very helpful. That's just before we go swimming. <laughs> Well, thank you all for joining us today.
on yet another interesting topic. We do hope to have some more light, helpful health and wellness news in coming shows. We'll see. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what the news brings. But thank you to all of our chatters for joining us. And we have yet to have anyone call in, but in the future. I guess none of our listeners have been hazed. (laughs) So thank you all. Bye, Bye, everybody. everybody.